Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Calvin Harbell, professor of sociology at Henry Ford College in Dearborn, Michigan. Dr. Harvell also has served as president of the Michigan Sociological Association, and he's the founder of Harbell and Associates, an education consulting firm. We talk with Dr. Harbell about racist language being replete in our lexicon and how its use perpetuates racism. For this conversation, we're joined by Judge Gail Williams Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court as we continue our discussions about race and racism in America. Dr. Harville, we've been looking at issues of race and racism, and one of the things that Judge Gail and I have uh, not talked about is racist language and language that people might not consider racist, but it is, and it's offensive. Can you talk about that concept of offensive language? Yes. Um, We think it's a very important question to essentially engage. And oftentimes we, as you said, we're not dealing with this thing in a proper manner. We have come into a pre-existing social order that is obsessed with racial hierarchies that are designed to control and devalue specific people's body, right? Those bodies that are attempting to navigate, survive, and thrive in that particular order. One of the ways in which we're able to control those bodies is by the ways in which we label or define those bodies. Melana uh, Karanga said the most powerful thing in the world is to construct reality and have people accept it, even when it's to their own disadvantage. And so that notion of constructing reality becomes extremely important when we're dealing with the issue of the language that we are essentially using. And so when we look at those racial hierarchies, um, these hierarchies are formed through what is called scientific racism. And I like to make sure I say scientific racism, but it's actually pseudoscientific racism. And these hierarchies then help to establish an order. In fact, uh, one of the uh, folks that I normally talk talk about when we talk about scientific racism is uh, Johann uh, Blumenbach, who created these ideas that there are five different races, Caucasian, Malaysian, Mongolian, uh, Indian, Ethiopian, okay? And of those five, he really broke this down in simpler form. So many of us don't know 
who Blumenbach is, but we know his color typology, right? So those five, Caucasian, Malaysian, Mongolian, Indian, Ethiopian, actually break down into black, brown, red, yellow, and white, right? And so what becomes extremely important is that these colors take on significant in terms of symbols, right? A symbol is anything which meaningfully represents something. You have different types of symbolism in terms of order. So a first order symbolism is when we recognize things based on their color. So someone says the sky is blue or grass is green or blood is red. Second order symbolism, and this is where it becomes extremely important, is when the symbols begin to have a culturally consensual meaning. So if I say that I feel blue, right, I don't actually feel a particular color, but you know what it means when I say that I feel blue. In fact, if I say I feel blue, you would say, well, what's wrong with you? You would know there was something wrong. I say that someone is seeing red that tells us that they're that, that they are upset. We say that somebody is green with envy, right? The, the color green becomes synonymous with the notion of envy. Well, what ultimately happens is that we construct or we have these particular colors and the colors begin to take on a meaning. And so whenever we begin to use these particular colors, right, in a system of what is called colorism, where the lighter the lighter one is, supposedly the more intelligent a person a person is, the more uh, a cunning a, pers a person is, the more uh, worth worthwhile in terms that person's life is, and the darker a person is, they should not have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of, and the pursuit of happiness. So those colors begin to become extremely important in the way in which we begin to frame reality. So what happens is, for example, we'll say, uh, you know, a dark and gloomy day. Or I was reading a story and five people got beat up in the story. It took a dark turn. What does that term therefore mean when we look at people who are darker than blue? If we tell someone to lighten up, right? You know, this person was was uh, was in a light, uh, cheerful mood. Again, the notion of light, which means easy, you know, taking taking it easy. What does this mean when it's transferred onto people? So, for example, and I'll just give a brief um example. I hope I'm not going too far in terms of this, but when we Look at this, you know, um, just this is a very, very brief example. Francis Crest Wellesing points this out. And some folks think think of this as being very simple first. Or they think, you know, you, you know, you, you, and, and this is a part, a part of racial language, right? You people look too far into these things, right? What people are you are you referring to? But what Francis Crest Wellesing says, you know, it says you don't have to go uh as far as your local grocery store and you see devil's food cake is is black. An angel's food cake is white. What does that essentially do in terms of the construction of a reality, in terms of how people begin to not only look at those folks, but also how those folks begin to see themselves in terms of the creation, perhaps, of a systematic inferiority complex? We go further in terms of this thing and we say things, you know, such as a person, we, we, have, a, we have a club. We want to keep, we don't want certain people in our club. We will blackball them. We have a person who's uh, kissing up at work. They are brown nosing. A person who is afraid is yellow. Your company loses um, money and it's in the red. However, we all are dreaming of a white of a white Christmas. And so what ultimately happens is that those first four groups, of course, are looked at in a negative manner, again, predicated on color. Now, this is we can pretend that we're not connected it to race, but again, the symbolism is there. And then whiteness, of course, is already is already in operation as the color force ought to try to essentially 
become. That becomes extremely important. And so a lot of times when we talk about this, I talk about what it's called when I'm in the classroom, I talk about the notion of decentralizing whiteness and using what is called disruptive pedagogy, right? So if we read our history text, I can always tell when someone white has done something versus someone who is of a darker skin pigmentation. So in our history textbooks, we use words such as settler, explorer, discoverer, and pioneer. Those words are racialized words, right on? It sounds good. You know, settler, that doesn't sound like someone did anything wrong. And explorer, I was just out looking for something and I discovered something. But what I say is we need to do engage in disruptive pedagogy because when we look at other groups outside of individuals who are of white skin pigmentation, there are different words that are used. They become invaders, terrorists, and colonizers. And so those are those are the ways in which we skillfully, in a sense, sneak in words or sneak in race into the narrative without being critically, without critically saying this is the race of this individual, right? Right now we look at some of the protests that have been going on throughout the country. And people are referred to as being thugs. Well, we know that thug is a word that is synonymous with a certain group of people. Let's be honest. It's, it's, it has become a word that has become synonymous with, with, with blackness. Now, when we look at our history books that we see the so-called Revolutionary War, a group of individuals who were white individuals called themselves the Sons of Liberty, which is extremely important, and they dressed up as a hated group of individuals, an indigenous, an, an indigenous nation, snuck into the Boston Harbor and threw all the tea into the, into the harbor, and they call it the Boston Tea Party. This is the way in which race is used skillfully without actually pointing out race. When white individuals destroy pop property in a malicious manner, it's a party. When other people are marching down the street or they're, or they're uh, protesting in various ways, they're a bunch of thugs. And of course, the, Boston, uh, the, 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 the folks in the Boston Tea Party were called the Sons of Liberty. But we know that when other people do it, we call them sons of something else that I will not say in this particular recording. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I just uh, going from what you said, I, the terms just race through my head. You know, blacklisting, uh, uh, a black the words out of uh, my mouth, <laughs> a, a, a black mark, uh, being a black sheep. But you know, all, all of the negative connotations to that. Judge Gale, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that that just really struck me. Uh, no, you you didn't. Actually, we were on um, on the same wavelength. I was just going to say, Dr. Harvell, that I was thinking as you were walking through um, some of those um, common notions, I was thinking about blacklisting and how we relate that to an individual who is who's fallen out of favor with others. And um, they now become blacklisted so that as to um perhaps brand them in a way so that they are now, they now not curry favor with others. Um, and it's intended to be negative in that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, um, the fact that uh, as you, when I said that and, you know, and, you all begin to pick up on other words. So I said, you know, black balling, but then as you said, a black, a black mark or black or black listed. Again, we have to look at the meaningful ways in which this narrative is being reproduced over and over again. And so what has happened, you know, we look at the four stages of, uh, of uh, racism. And in one of the stages, and no one ever talks about this stage, is what's called refinement, right? Since racism is pervasive, but every now and then, so you have maintenance, 
right? So my car's running fine, but I wanted to continue to run fine. So I'll take it in for some maintenance. But refinement is I'm going to change a couple of things to perhaps change the appearance, but the system is still there. So what has happened is that instead of uh, using, you know, the traditional racist words, and I won't use any of those words, but you you all know the traditional racist words to essentially label whether it be people who are of, uh, Lat of uh, Latino descent or people of indigenous uh, descent or black folk or people of Middle Eastern descent. Right now, people have moved into the refinement stage where they're using a type of sophisticated racism, right? Sophisticated racial semantics where I no longer will call someone the N-word. Instead, I will say they are a bunch of underprivileged thugs. I, instead of calling someone that particular word, I'll say, well, you know how those people are who come from broken homes, right? So it would, it's, it would be uncouth for me to call them a bunch of filthy ends. Instead, they're underprivileged thugs, uncultured thugs who come from broken homes, and you know how those people are. Exactly. I, I, my mind is racing with with language that that we use, and some of it, I'm sure, is used inadvertently. But culturally, it's been accepted. So culturally, we're accepting this this racist uh, verbiage. Yes, absolutely. It's powerful, you know, when we talk about, you know, as I said, uh, when I first started, I said we've come into a pre a pre-existing social order, which of course looks at the notion of the structure itself. But yes, there's a culture that is operating within the structure. And what is culture? Culture is knowledge, values, beliefs, and material objects that are passed from person to person, one society to and one generation to the next. And so the acceptance is extremely important. Now I'm so glad that you used that word acceptance. The acceptance is that. Look at who it's being passed on from. So in many cases, right, this is being passed on from mom and dad, grandmother, grandfather, uncle, aunt, my schoolroom, right? My teacher, who is the authority, when mom and dad dropped me off on the first on the first day, they said to listen to whatever that uh, the uh, teacher says, and they better not get a bad report. So these are the authorities that are in our lives, and they have embraced, and they're using this type of language. And so once they're embracing and using this type of language, it begins to reinforce what is called what uh, Schwartz calls the master script, this master narrative that runs throughout the entire culture. And so when we say acceptance, absolutely it's going to be accepted because in many cases we're not going to challenge it. It becomes a part of overall dominant narrative in society. And it becomes what is looked at as being the truth about race, right? You know, so for example, I, um, I've often, uh, I've, I've worked on a college campus. I've been on various college campuses and it's always interesting, um, where there's always this, this assumption, uh, I, I will tell somebody will ask me something about college. They'll say, Oh, you went to college. Well, what sport, what, what sport do you play? Or what sport did you play? So notice for that is, again, a racially loaded question. What sport do I play? That therefore, when you see a black person, their college experience has to be associated with their athletic problems, which means their college experience is somehow associated with their body and the systematic exploitation of the black of the black and brown bodies. But for other people that I have been with my colleagues, when they say, you know, oh, you've been to college. What did you study? Why? Right. Because college is looked at as a traditionally white space. 
in order for blacks or brown folk to get into these particular spaces, we have to somehow have athletic prowess. When other folks go to these spaces solely based on their intellectual prowess, again, highly racialized. Or how many times, um, Dr. Harvell, have you been met with the compliment of you went to college, you are so articulate <laughs> as if that is you are now the exception to the rule um, and not the rule itself. And that somehow being able to string together a grammatically correct sentence makes you extraordinary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's powerful that you say that in terms of extraordinary, because the notion of extraordinary still suggests that because we have allowed we have allowed you into our traditionally white space, we have somehow provided through our benevolence, we have gotten you to a place where now you are socially acceptable. And 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 when we look when we look at this, we don't have to go too far to look at uh, what happened at the Lake Mohawk Conference in the uh, 1800s, where they were trying to solve what was called the Indian problem and the N. And you know the N word that I do not use problem. And they said that, you know, we have to figure out a way that we're going to educate these people in a manner such that they will not be in the way. We're going to educate these people in a manner such that they will control them. And so uh, one of the, I just showed a video to my students about some of the uh, Indian uh, boarding schools uh, under uh, General Carlisle, the Carlisle School. And one of the models was kill the Indian, save the, save the man. What does that actually mean? Well, a part of that was the melt was the melting pot. I'm going to systematically dismantle your culture and I'm going to replace it with something else that is more palatable for me. It's extremely important. And so, again, a part of this was of the killing of the Indian was taking everything away from that person that identified them with their culture, with their ancestors, with their history, with their own self-determination, their own more ways and folk and folk ways, destroy that, Tell, make it into something that was bad, make it into something that was awful, right? Make it into something that was not intelligent and then replace it with something or a weaker person that could then be controlled. And so, yes, the whole notion of, you know, oh, you, and yes, I hear that so much. Oh, you speak so, you speak so well, well, why was I not supposed to? And so even that question reinforces this notion that Black folk are supposed to be. There's some kind of natural intelligence that is embodied within my Blackness. And when you speak of control, Dr. Harville, that's so interesting because wasn't that in large part the whole premise of slavery was control. Uh, there's the, the most profound control feature. The idea was that you know, Africans and now African-Americans were subhuman. And so the whole idea was that although they were larger and, and stronger, but the idea was that the, the you know, Europeans were there, they were more superior. And so they were designed to break down and to control um, Blacks and to, you know, diminish everything that they were so that they could, again, control this, you know, subhuman individual that they treated that no better than a piece of furniture. Oh, absolutely. That is so powerful. The word control. Uh, Mills writes about something called the racial contract. And in the racial contract, there's this basic idea that uh, there's something called the European chain of being that says just as in nature, individuals or human beings are ranked in a hierarchy. Okay. And so you think about, you know, lions, you know, being the king of the jungle. Uh, and then you see, you think about a squirrel or a raccoon being much, much uh, weaker than the lion, supposedly natural. Notice I said supposedly natural, right? And well, some of these uh, early theorists, they believe in this European chain of being. And what grew out of this chain of being is that you have European nations on top and they're all ranked predicated on their culture. 
once they begin to come in contact with people who are different culturally, but also different in terms of their phenotype, they begin to believe that that, pheno, that phenotypical differences also promoted geno, genotypical differences as well. And so the idea was, this is extremely important, was the creation of a paternalistic, uh, a, a paternalistic order where one group was going to be the parents of the other group. So I'm the parent and this group is the, is the child. And so the notion of conquering these people was not really conquering, but instead we're going to throw that word out, disruptive ped pedagogy. I'm not conquering these people. I'm civilizing these people. They have backward religions. I'm going to give them the real religion. They eat backward food. They dress in a backward manner. They don't have an actual language. I'm going to civilize them. And so I'm going to hide my conquering under civilization. So when you say the notion of control, I think of um, uh, uh, Madison Grant's book, The Passing of the Great of the Great Race. You know, he's writing all of this research on race. And a lot of folks don't know he was a eugenist and he was a zoologist. Now, the reason that I mentioned he's a zoologist is that um, he was uh, one of the people who was very, very vocal. There was a young man by the name of Oda Binga, who, according to the narrative, he was found. This is a very important word. He was found on the continent of Africa. Now, of course, the continent of Africa is where he was from. So he was he knew where he was at. OK, some people came in and they claimed that they had found him. He he knew where he was at. What they essentially did in um, uh, Madison Grant, again, in the passing of the great of the great race, he talks about this need to create systems of domination to help civilize certain people. And so what they did is they actually, this is important when you say the word control, they actually put this young man in the zoo. He was on display in the Bronx Zoo, I think it was 1905 and 1906. And thousands of people came out to see him, uh, to just you know gawk at him, to throw things at him. But this helped to reinforce this narrative of black inferiority. And again, this notion of human zoos and human exhibits, uh, these are not people that these are therefore not people. These are defined, these are folks who are defined as semi-savages, right? They're on the verge of civility. And therefore, instead of conquering, again, I'm civilizing these people. There, there are three areas that, that I'd like to ask you about, Dr. Harvell, and that is political rhetoric, journalistic uh, reportage, and then the, the average folk. And I'd like to separate those a, a, a little bit. Uh, there's a whole discourse uh, uh, of political rhetoric that are code words uh, we've heard dog whistles. I'm sort of tired of that phrase, but there, all of these political ways of saying things that are highly racist, but we seem to tolerate those. Yes. Uh, when we say that we tolerate them, and I, again, one of my arguments is that because racism is pervasive, Racism is a part, it's embedded in the structure of society. It is going to be accepted, and, and this is going to sound bad, because there's nothing else, right? What other model do we essentially have to follow when racism is, as we talk about the culture, it is as American as mom and apple pie and baseball. And so, you know, we if we talk about cancel, I mean, we see this, right? Folks were talking about canceling sports because we're in the middle of a pan of a pandemic, and folks got more were more upset with the notion that sports may be canceled than the notion that, for example, children don't have access to computers to go to online classes, right? Because sports is something that is American. Providing access is 
not American, right? And so we accept this particular, this is, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. I, I want to make sure I say that one more time. Sports is American. Providing access to all people is anti-American. So when you start to talk about the notion of not having sports, oh my goodness, you are you are pulling at the fiber of this of this particular country. So if you start talking about pro, um, providing access or equal access to people, well, all of a sudden you're a socialist or you're a communist. So again, when we talk about this notion of the political rhetoric, absolutely, it's going to be accepted because it is a part of the structure. In fact, I argue, and folks get very upset upset with me with this, I argue that racism is a core value of this country, a core value of this country. So the same as individualism, the same as capitalism, it is a core value of the country. Um, we look at this uh, when you talked about the political rhetoric. In the last couple of years, and I, and, and I want to make sure I say this properly, in the last couple of years, I've been hearing on the um, this, you know, pol- politicians coming on television talking about the notion of people, you know, this opioid addiction. Okay, and I'm not suggesting that this is not something that should be discussed. But when they say the word opioid addiction, I know that they're talking about a particular race, a particular race, because back in the 80s, the word was not opioid addiction. It were people who were crackheads or crack. And I don't want to say the uh, the uh, derogatory word toward women or they were drug addicts. Right. And look at the difference. Opioid addiction. Addiction is something that can be deconstructed. Addiction is something that can be moved away from, right? So opioid addiction has been a label for white individuals in the political sphere. But when you say drug addict or crack or crackhead, and the notion of drug addict, addict, the the totality of your being, something that you cannot ever escape. And so again, as American as apple pie. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. One further point, and then I'll let Judge Cahill get back in here. But, but from a journalist standpoint, and, and I look at, I'm, I'm looking after we've had these conversations, and and I'll certainly look more after this one into the way we journalistically describe things. Sometimes that seems to me to work hand in glove with the racial political rhetoric. Uh, you know, we talk about urban 
instead of metropolitan. Metropolitan to me is white. Urban is code for black, but yet we use that journalistically all the time. We, we code things, whether we intend to or not, in a derogatory way. Yes, yes. Um, I when, when we talk about the journalistic, and I appreciate you uh, creating the, sep- the separation in those three ideologies, and I may not have addressed the question properly because, because I do not see a separation in what are called the nine key areas of racism. And so the mass media or journalism is one of those areas. Politics is another area. The, uh, the family is another area. Education, sex, criminal, criminal justice. So I see them all as functioning together. I see it all as a smooth system, right? As the human body in a sense, right? Um, I see it as a car. Everything in the car, when I go and turn the ignition in my car, there are several different functions. It doesn't matter how large or how small. What matters is that they all are functioning properly. So I see the entire system is working together. And so, yes, when you talk about the notion of journal of journalism, journalism has been influenced or has been informed by the larger structure. Therefore, the political uh, arena has been informed by education, has been, has been informed by religion, et cetera. I'll give you an, a, an example of this. It's very Im- interesting. I live in Michigan uh, currently, and I'm sure you saw in the news that uh, recently there was a plot to essentially kidnap the governor. That's powerful. Well, while I was watching the news, I knew who it was that was trying to kidnap the the uh, the uh, the uh, governor? Because the journalists only called it a kidnapping plot. Okay, now if these had been black individuals trying to kidnap the governor, you can imagine the types of language. Again, sophisticated racism. They wouldn't have said a bunch of filthy. We're trying to kidnap the governor, but we're talking about they would have been thugs and somehow uh, gangster rap music had caused this thing to essentially happen because these people have all come from these culturally deprived, broken, broken homes. And think about what the word broken homes means, right? Broken homes is code word for black and and brown bodies because broken homes create broken people. If we're talking about white individuals, they come from latchkey homes, right? Because these are children whose parents are at are at home, but they're so responsible that they get themselves in the house, fix their dinner, get their brothers and sisters in the house, and they do their homework by the time their parents come in and everything is perfect. But black kids come from broke from broken homes. And also remember, Dr. Harvell, these yes. are also parents that are likely employed. And so Absolutely. their children are, in fact, latchkey because the parents are responsible enough and fortunate yes. enough to be employed more likely than not. And also the derivative of broken homes, at least for African-Americans, comes from the derivation of slavery. Our homes exactly. were broken from the very beginning when children were ripped from the arms of mothers and marriage was, um, you know, legally non-existent among slaves. Yes. And what's powerful about that is. When we say broken homes and we focus just on the homes, that's one of the uh, the other things. We never look at the causation right on. We don't look at what has caused this thing. The same thing is drug addict versus opioid addiction. Opioid addiction says something happened to have this person become addicted to this thing because of the ready, uh, the excess, the accessibility of certain types of drugs. Drug addict does not look at the, the, the environment that has nurtured this, uh, that has nurtured, uh, what this person has essentially done. Now, what's also important about, like I said, with the, uh, with the, uh, governor. So I knew it was not anyone black because of the language that was used. 
And the other thing, and I live in Michigan. In fact, I live, uh, uh, I teach in Dearborn. Dearborn is a, has the, uh, the largest population of folks from the Middle East outside of the middle of the Middle East. During this entire time, they're talking about the plot to kidnap the governor. I knew it could not have been anyone of Middle Eastern ancestry because why? We know that the, that the buzzword for Middle Eastern ancestry folk who are doing things is what? Insurgent or terrorist. So at no time was the word terrorist used. At no time was the word insurgent used. Yet these people had a very sophisticated plot to essentially kidnap the governor. Now, about two days afterwards, they made an announcement on our local news here. They, and, 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 and the announcement was powerful. It was like as if they were asking permission to use the word domestic terrorism. Again, when we're dealing with certain groups, we have to ask for permission. When we deal with other groups, no, they're just a bunch of thug terrorists from broken homes who listen to gangster rap music, or they're a bunch of terrorists who, who, who follow some type of backward religion that tells them they're supposed to go and kill Americans. Or urban terrorists. We or hear that terrorists. term a lot. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that denotes a, a certain classification of people. Absolutely. Very, very much so. The notion of, yes, uh, of, you know, as I, I like how you put the notion of metropolitan versus urban. And even when we talk about, you know, space, right? Urban versus suburban. We know what that essentially means. I mean, we even use certain cities, certain cities we uh, or certain parts of town where, you know, those people live in and we know who those particular people are. At times I'm in a class. And they, uh, I live in the city of Detroit. And I always know when folks are talking about black folk without trying to talk about black folk, because they will say, well, you know, uh, those people in Detroit do this, right? Or I don't act like those people in Detroit. What does that actually mean? Do all the people in the in Detroit engage in the same exact behavior. And we know that this is not accurate. So again, these broad over generalizations, again, embedded within the culture of this particular country. Gail, as a, as a black woman and a black woman judge and black woman professional, uh, you've encountered this th throughout your career. Oh, indeed. And um, I think that what Dr. Harvell has very um, clearly pointed out and, and, ar and articulated here is the experience that so many um, Blacks have have had and will continue to have, quite frankly, because it is a common thread just through the American experience, even through and to, um, as Dr. Harville pointed out, the recent experience with the governor of Michigan, but even through and to um, the experience we saw um, with regard to the naming of the first Black female vice presidential candidate um, in relation to her colleague from the great state of Georgia. And uh, Dr. Harville, I'd, I'd even ask you to even speak to that because, you know, it actually started a, a trend on Twitter, the hashtag my name is, when it comes to, you know, just the, the appreciation of, you know, name derivation, how much that means to, you know, culturally to us. And the fact that, again, as you started just so poignantly talking about these comparisons, how, you know, the, the language, the Europeanized language has so taken over everything and how the comparisons, especially um, when it comes to um, you know, making references to darkened or dark things is so negative and it harkens back to the negativity of Blacks and Black Americans and, and the like. 
but how this experience, and I think that it's just become so, um, right now it is, it just sort of unearths the, you know, the underbelly of how Blacks often feel when, you know, even when it comes to just trying to name your child so that you are looking around that corner of how white America will likely treat them in in their lifetime or in their experiences and having to as you you know describe the experience of an Indian Americans having to perhaps possibly reject your ethnicity so that you can shield them from these experiences because of the um you know myopic view of of you know European America and the treatment that they'll experience but to see this now on the national stage and how that also plays out and 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 how you see that from your perspective that is so powerful that you asked the question uh, about naming and a part of the naming is the ability to be able to control the uh, the notion of being able to strip someone of their name a lot of times folks don't think of the name as being something that connects you to your ancestral origin connects you to a particular nationality or nation, connects you to your ethnicity, your religion, your four ways, your mo- your mo- ways, and most importantly, your own self-determination. When people lose the ability to name themselves and to define their own reality, they then will fall under the control of other people. And so as you mentioned, the Indian boarding boarding schools, one of the first things that happened to those children is that they were renamed. We don't even know this, you know, uh, that's powerful about the uh, Statue of Liberty. As the, you know, it's called the Statue of Liberty, but how many folk when they first came through on uh, uh, in Ellis Island, and of course, right, the statue was dedicated, I think it was 1886, and the whole phrase of give us your tired, your, your, huddle, your huddle masses, that was added many, many years later. A lot of folk don't recognize, don't recognize this. In fact, there was a lot of native nativism that was happening where there was this idea that we don't we don't want certain types of people to come into this into our country, right? We don't want certain types of people. You have to be a certain type. But what was happening at the uh at Ellis Island is folks were beginning to be stripped of their identity right then. They had to lose their name. There's an interesting book called How the Irish Became Became White. This idea that Irish folks had to go through, although they were already white in terms of their phenotype, this notion of whiteness was also something that people begin to associate with ethnicity. So they had to become white by losing certain elements of their ethnic identity. So you will find an Irish person who would maybe drop the uh, prefix of their, of their, that was a part of their last name. So someone who may have been McHenry dropped their last name to Henry, right? We saw this with the Pol- with Polish individuals as well, right? Polanski became just planned. And so what ultimately happened is that this was this notion of melting to become more palatable to the dominant group. And so when we talk when so when we talk about this idea of naming, right? The naming is extremely important because it again, I want to make sure this it connects you. We see this because it also in, uh, deals with the issue of control. So we look at um every every year they cel- they celebrate uh, a gentleman by the name of Jack Roosevelt Robinson. Okay, and every time I say Jack Roosevelt Robinson in the class, my students believe they're going to correct me and say, "Oh no, his name was Jackie." No, his name was not Jackie. This was something that those and you talked about the uh, journalists that journalists begin to essentially call this particular man again as a means of I'm going to take control and possession over this black body. Not only am I going to change your name, but you better answer to this thing. So we saw where uh, R- Roberto Clemente. 
His name was Roberto. And they begin to call him Bob. And he says, no, I'm not going to answer to this. And so he specifically did not name to this. And so he specifically did not name, did not answer to this name. We saw the same thing with Muhammad Ali, which is extremely important. Right. So, again, Trying to control people means that they cannot have their own self-determination, or in our culture, we call it kujijagalia. So with Muhammad Ali, he was Cassius Clay. Folks would not call the man by the name he had legally changed his name to. And so again, why can I not call you by this thing? Because I did not give this to you. But on the plantation, when I gave you a name, it became who you were. It became the totality of your identity. I cannot respect you unless it's something that I give to you. And so, yes, we see what's happening with the um, with the current vice presidential candidate. And I think what's important about this is we look at that intersectionality in terms of both race and sex. Let's be honest about this. We know that there are certain things that she would not have to uh, deal with if she was not I'm sorry, if we were not dealing are operating within a patriarchal culture. And I want to make sure because I'm being we're, we're being critical with language. You will notice that I didn't say she wouldn't have to deal with this if she was not a woman. Because what that does, when we say this happened to me because I'm a woman, what that says is that there was something wrong with her womanness in a sense, right? That if you weren't a woman, these things wouldn't happen. No, we have to engage in disruptive pedagogy. If patriarchy did not have the need to control women, this would not happen to you. The same thing in terms of racism. You will hear people say, this happened to me because I was black or this happened because I'm of this particular group. No. If racism did not have a systematic need to control and exploit and devalue people, these things would not happen. That's disruptive pedagogy. Let me ask a follow-up to that. You talk about disruptive pedagogy. Which comes first, or is it sort of a chicken and egg uh, kind of uh, thing? Uh, do we disrupt the pedagogy and then our language changes, or do we address the language as a vehicle to disrupt the pedagogy? Excellent question. We have to engage in the disruptive pedagogy first. Because the language is so embedded in terms of the culture, just by challenging people for, you know, by saying something like, well, why are we using, you know, dark, dark terms to be associated with evil and light color, uh, light terms to be associated with things that are pure, right? Just by saying that, what you will get is a type of pushback of you people are too critical of these things, right? Things have changed, leave this thing alone. You're overly sensitive, which of course is a microaggression. When somebody is telling you that they are offended by something and then rather than you say, oh my goodness, I apologize. I did not think of it in that particular manner. I apologize. Well, I don't need to apologize because I don't have any value for you. So disruptive pedagogy means we have to just step into this thing and just hit folks with it in a sense, right? So for example, um, you, uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching, rather than say things such as, yes, and, and Christopher Columbus discovered America. Say, I say something like there was this individual who was a colonizing terrorist, pedophile, kidnapping rapist who essentially invaded a sovereign nation of innocent people who did nothing to him. In fact, when they first saw him, they brought him gifts. And now that creates an entirely different discussion versus us versus me trying to say, oh, well, you know, how can you discover something where somebody was already here? That creates a different type of discussion. Some of these things, you know, it's similar to when we talked about paternalistic uh, paternalistic race relations. 
when the powerful folks say that they're going to engage in paternalistic race relations, they say that we are civilizing these people when it's actually conquering. And so when the oppressed people are fighting against, they say, yes, they're just like children. They don't want to accept what we're giving them, although it's best for them. The same is with children. My child is sick. The child doesn't want to take medicine, but I'm the parent. I know best. The medicine is going to be good for them. I think we have to do the same exact thing if we're going to critically be really critically and intentional in our dismantling and deconstructing of this language. I think that's absolutely on point. Um, I could not have said it better, but I think, um, Dr. Harville, as an educator, what steps are the first steps in doing that? And how do we begin that process of sort of, um, I guess, teaching that process and where do you think the first steps are, especially given that it's going to be the, the job of our, our young people, our next generation, and basically um, unlearning some of these behaviors and having the, the courage of their convictions to push back against some of these behaviors? Wonderful question. I think the first step is really a, a very important step that begins with those of us who are educators and we need to be able to make sure that we're going to provide or produce educators. So it starts, I think, in schools of education, right? We need to be able to provide educators with information where they can be courageous in these conversations, where they can recognize some of their own language, right? A lot of this that I'm talking about, we have educators that are using these racialized terms in very negative manners as well. So we have to begin with the educators prior to getting to the children. And so again, this goes back to the original question. We talked about the notion of culture. So being able to go and deal with educators first, you know, who are the people that we're putting in front of our children? What are their bias, right? What are their challenges in terms of understanding issues of race, uh, sex, gender, et cetera? What are they bringing to the classroom? This is, and this is this, this next word that I'm going to use is very important. What types of ways are they engaged in cultural and emotional violence against these children? How are they reinforcing the trauma, the racial trauma that children are feeling every single day? I'll give you an example of this. I work with a group, a group of of, uh, of uh, young people. They're, uh, they're, uh, it's a group, pre predominantly black uh, students. And we were going to a conference and the students were going to be presenting. Okay, One of my colleagues, this is extremely, extremely important, who has never visited the group, didn't know anybody in the group. His first statement was, I don't think these types of students are prepared to go to a college. Now, I'm sorry, to go to a conference. So again, these types of students, right? That now who, what, what did he mean by this? He meant black students are not prepared for this. Now, again, he didn't know any of these students, had never been to any of our meetings, et cetera. So of course I gave him the look and we know what that look is. And he says, oh, 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 but, but, and this is again, this is heavy in terms of racism, but I'm not racist, nor am I trying to be prejudiced. Then he tries to explain his way out of this. He says, well, well, what I meant was when I was an undergrad, I wouldn't have been prepared for this. So I know, I notice this language, I know that those students, those types of students are not prepared. So I simply told him, I said, well, obviously you went to an inferior institution and <laughs> you did not have Dr. Calvin Derone Harville as your professor or you would have been better prepared. Well, I don't have to tell you this. 
he hasn't spoken to me in the last three and a half years. Now, of course, um, and I'm sorry to say this, I, I said to myself, if this is all that it took to run him away, right? Because all he does is spew racist uh, cultural violence. And so if he can say that to his colleague, right, to his black colleague, who is working with these students to get them ready to go to a conference, what is he doing every day in the classroom? And so we have to make sure that we're challenging those types of folks, but also providing spaces that we need to hear from those folks as well. Because as this conversation began, many of these folks do not recognize, because it is so embedded in the culture, do not recognize that they are doing these activities. Well, Dr. Harva, we need to wrap this up, but l let me thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us and and enlightening uh, me, uh, at least. And I, I am going to teach my journalism classes differently. Um, and I am going to uh, point out uh, the abuse of language uh, that we commonly use. Uh, to uh, create differences that should not be there. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. And Dr. Harvell, I want to say thank you for this um, free audited course on um, language, appropriate language, this today, because you have absolutely taken us to, to class today and in spending your time with us. And I think your your viewpoints were extraordinary um, and it was exceptionally eye-opening, um, even for myself. And I want to thank you for sharing um, your knowledge and your experience. Um, and hopefully your colleague will see clear um, to understanding the error of his language, of his ways and of his thinking such that he will um, begin to value the benefit of having you as a colleague and learn how to best use his talents as a professor and his skills to better um, the students that he's blessed enough to be in front of to teach. But I want to thank you for the time that you've spent with us and also the extraordinary benefit that you are providing every student that you teach, because certainly you're doing some serious heavy lifting on behalf of so many of us. Thank you. Oh my goodness. I thank you both for those such kind words. I am humbled. I, I, I appreciate such kind words. They're very meaningful. I thank you for allowing me to have time and for me to share my voice in this very timely and important space. And I hope I gave you what you were uh, what you were looking for during this time that we've had together. Today, we've been talking with sociology professor Dr. Calvin Harvell about our use of hurtful and racist language in our everyday speech. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please take time and rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, 
please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.